Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are tuned in to Triple R, and you have an hour of science ahead of you. We've got some great guests coming in the studio, virtually, of course, uh, for the next hour, and we're doing some news at the end of the show with Dr. Lauren, Dr. Linden, and another special guest coming in, actually, to talk about something that's just was wild this morning at 4 a.m., if you happen to be up in time for it. But in the studio, first up, we have Dr. Aldi Comprasi. She's from the Center for Integrative Ecology at Deakin University. Eldie, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. It's great to have you on. Now, you work, well, first of all, we should talk a bit about your PhD, which you recently finished, which is uh, involves a lot of work on seabirds in particular, and my understanding from some really amazing parts of the world. Tell us a little bit about what you've been looking at. Yeah, um, so I was working on what's called individual specializations uh, in seabirds. So it's looking at how, where they feed and how they feed and whether they have strategies that they put in place that they keep going back to. So, for example, most of us, I reckon, go to the same supermarket because we know where things are, we know where to park, and that's just easy and convenient. Um, so some seabirds do the same in that they go back to the same area to feed, um, and we think that it increases their uh, success, so they're more likely to find what they're after. Um, and in some seabirds that nest in big colonies, it's also a way to avoid competition. So if you go for squids and I go for fish, then, you mm. know, we're good and uh, we, we don't, you know, step on each other's toes, so, so to speak. So, yeah, I've been looking at that in uh, penguins and shags, which is a seabird related to cormorants. Um, and, yeah, I did some field work in uh, an island, a French Antarctic territory, called Kerguelen, which is in the middle of nowhere, pretty much if you draw a triangle between South Africa, Antarctica, and, uh, and Australia, it's right in the middle. Um, so some very, very stunning um, islands there. There's a lot of, um, yeah, lots of wildlife, lots of seabirds and marine mammals. And one of the best thing, in my opinion, was that um, animals haven't associated us as threats because yep. humans haven't been on the island for a long time. So, you know, these animals just let you be there with them. Um, penguins and albatrosses and all sorts of, you know, and seals, all sorts of wildlife that you, you can live amongst and, and it's a very special place. Yeah, so I can, so I can imagine, you know, because as many animals are just curious of, of, of us when they haven't learnt, you know, well, they haven't heard of us before and they haven't read the news about what we're like from, you know, the rest of the animal kingdom. But the, the, the area you describe, I'm trying to picture in my head where this island is and I seem to just remember ocean being there, right? I mean, there's, there must be nothing for quite quite a distance there. How do, you, do, you, do you boat in, I assume, to that location? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so and, and the journey in itself is, is fantastic. So um, we live from a small island called Reunion Island, which is called to, uh, close to Madagascar. Mm -hmm. And then um, it's about 10 days on the boat to reach Kerguelen. So there's actually three islands that the boat um, sort of goes to, and it's a big oceanographic vessel. 
Um, the first is called Cosa. It's about four to five days, depending on the weather, to reach that island. Usually you stay there um, for a day or two because uh, they have to, you know, they have the helicopter that drops off the food and the parcels and the scientific equipment and all that, so it takes a few days. Um, and then after that, there's, yeah, another probably four days to, to reach Kegelen, the second island. Um, so, yeah, it, and then there's a third island, which is in the sort of subtropical area called Amsterdam, and then it goes back. So the whole loop takes about a month, and mm. it's quite a, it's quite interesting being on a boat and not seeing any land at all for days on end. It's yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, incredible. And what about the the island scenario there? Is it is it similar to the situation with you know many of the Antarctic bases where there is a very very strong focus on removal of what we take down, especially you know contaminants and so forth, and trying to to limit that type of human damage that we see everywhere else in the world. Is is there similar scenarios in place for these islands? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, we're really careful with our waste. Um, de- depending on where you are, either a tractor can come and collect the waste. A lot of it, it gets burned on site anyway, mm-hmm. uh, what we can burn. And, um, and yeah, the rest come, goes back to base and then um, is, you know, go, goes back on the boat for recycling mm. and just going back to Reunion Island. So, yeah, we yeah we really careful with that, but um, you know, thinking of our our interactions is kind of yeah, it's quite sad to see that even in such remote areas, you still see plastic heaps of plastic rubbish on on the coast and on the beach, and it's you know like I can't be further away from civilization, mm. and yet you know there's this plastic rubbish and things like that, so. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, wake-up call in a way that our influence as humans have, you know, extended to the the most remote. Yeah, the most remote places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we've had um, a few guests on over the years talking about even atmospheric contamination levels in Antarctica that are traced back to the northern hemisphere. Which, you know, when you think about it, is you know, there's a, there's a transit time I think of several years, but it gets there eventually, and it, and it causes problems there as well. Now, you've um, moved on there. You're working on um, some of the sort of human wildlife conflict scenarios that happen here in Australia. Um, first of all. Has this situation changed dramatically over the last few months when, you know, all the all the bad, naughty humans have been locked away? Is, have things gotten better? Yes, absolutely. Um, it has. So there's, what we've seen um, is a significant reduction in animals that are hit by cars. Mm. That's one. So I should say that soon. The data I'm analysing comes from Wildlife Victoria, and, and I work there as well as an emergency response operator. So we take calls from the members of the public who want to report sick, orphaned and injured animals. Um, And so, yeah, this data that I've been looking at comes from there. And a lot of the time we actually don't know what happened to the animals when when we get to it. Uh, But in some cases we have, you know, a precise coast type. And for the cases that we know what happened, uh, hit by a vehicle is definitely the main um, issue for wildlife. So we've seen a very big reduction of, in that, about 70%. So, yeah, that's that's been huge. Um, there's still, you know, people having wildlife issues at home or they, they get into trouble or foot netting or things like that in mm. yards. So that's still been reported. But, uh, yeah, definitely things like hit by a vehicle have de- 
pretty significantly. Yeah. So a question I want to ask you about that, which I'm, I'm kind of a little bit hesitant to ask because I'm worried about what the answer will be. But with, with humans out of action for a little while, I, I've wondered whether, you know, some of our wildlife has sort of started to move further into urban areas with us not sort of all over the place. And is it likely as a result of that, if that's true, that we will see a massive increase in some of these injuries you know, when we start getting back out there on the roads and so forth because there'll have been this period where, to be frank, your animals will think, oh, it's, it's reasonably safe to, to move into these areas. There's less humans around. Well, there, do, do you think there'll be a bit of a spike in, in the work you have um, to do? Yeah, possibly. But at the same time, like, because of urbanisation, wildlife has had to you know, adapt to urban areas anyway, and some of them are doing quite well. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's a short enough time to really get anyone more confident to move in cities mm. if they didn't have to do it anyway because they're losing their habitat. And I think that's the, that's the main issue anyway, all the constructions that are happening and uh, the habitat that is being, you know, reduced. Um, I think is is something that they have to adapt to. So if they have to adapt to that, it won't really make that much of a difference. I think when when COVID restrictions are relaxed and everyone starts going back to mm. uh, driving and things like that. But yeah, yeah. And and there must be a lot of species, especially around Melbourne suburbs and so forth, that are fairly integrated with our urban environment now. I mean, whether they're, you know, flying foxes or, you know, some of the, the smaller lizards and frogs and so forth. Uh, uh, over the years, we've spoken to a variety of people who've indicated how these species have sort of started to integrate into our um, scenario. So things like, you know, cats and, and so forth become a very big problem, not just humans, but but other animals as well. I mean, what yeah. what sort of, I mean, how, how integrated are some of our wildlife species with, with our, our sort of suburban areas? Yeah, well, uh, that's a good question. And I think, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, common species have made the cities home. Mm. Um, you know, I live in the middle of Hawthorne and I have a possum that I can see every night from my balcony. Um, yeah, wildlife just has found ways to make living and, it does come with issues. Um, I, I talked about, you know, being being hit by cars or entangled in fruit netting. But, yeah, again, with that reduction in habitat, a lot of wildlife doesn't really have the choice. And, um, yeah, a lot of them are actually doing quite well. But that's something – I'm French and back in Europe, um, we barely have any wildlife at all. When I arrived in Australia, I was just amazed that you can see – lorikeets, you can see possums, you can see blue-tongue lizards in suburban areas. And I was like, wow, this is something completely new to me and completely exciting. And that's why I now got into human-wildlife conflicts and doing research on that because, you know, back home, you'd have to go to remote, uh, semi-remote areas, but yeah. to parks or reserves to actually see wildlife, but here it's right there in the city. Yeah, it's everywhere. Um, now, you've also been part of the um, the Point of Science program or, or becoming part of it this year. Tell us just a little bit about that before you go for those who haven't heard of that before. Yeah, um, so I've been coordinating it in Melbourne for about three years, I think, and it's just about, you know, bringing science to people. And so we get scientists that are, you know, engaging good communicators to just 
come to bars, pubs, and talk about their research with the public. So it's usually very exciting. Uh, obviously, this year was very different because we couldn't have physical events in pubs, uh, but we did have a bunch of online events that I think worked really well and, you know, probably also engaged different people with, with science in general, but we have all sorts of scientists and all sorts of topics that are covered as well. Mm. Well, LD, look, it's great to talk to you. Uh, keep up your good work there. And I, it's, I've always wondered when I drive past those signs with the phone number about wildlife who, who are hurt, you know, who would be at the other end of that line. And I'm guessing, you know, you and the team there do that. And it's such a, it's such a great service. And I think, you know, there's so many so many animals that are hurt on the roads and so forth. It's, it's one of those things that making sure that we can help those that we can is done well so thanks for doing that for us uh coming all the way from france to come and help us with our, our wildlife because we're you know they're so integrated with our our lives and um good luck with your ongoing work as well thank you and thank you for having me great great to talk to you we have our second guest on the line now it's dr daniel fernandez ruiz from the doherty institute good morning daniel how are you going Morning, very good. How are you? Good. It's great to talk to you uh, on what is an incredibly important topic, and that is the issue of malaria. I think, um, I mean, most people are aware of the fact that this is still a disease that, uh, you know, kills millions every year and infects, you know, vastly more than that. Um, give us an idea before we get into your work, just what's the current sort of strategy for dealing with malaria? I mean, I, my suspicion is it's a combination of, of things, but give us a rundown on how we, how we tackle it at the moment. Well, there are different ways that um, we are trying to combat uh, malaria. Um, we have drugs that uh, can be used to treat people, to prevent the infection, or, well, actually to kill the infection uh, when they're infected. Um, there are other strategies, like trying to prevent people from getting in contact with the mosquitoes, like uh, through bed nets, uh, mm. impregnated insecticide. Um, but it is thought that if we had a, an effective malaria vaccine, that would help a lot controlling and perhaps eradicating malaria. But we don't have one at the moment. Yeah, because, I, I mean, I've had guests on here over the years even talking about modif genetically modifying mosquitoes so they can't carry the malaria parasite. Like, uh, there's all all these different, I mean, quite quite a range of tactics. But my understanding that, it, especially in developing countries, um, you know, a lot of children in particular still still die of the condition, even with all these strategies in place. Is that right? Yes. Um, malaria is a disease that mainly kills uh, kids. Like uh, last year, there were about 400,000 deaths from malaria in the world, and most of them are children under the age of five. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's very difficult to control. It affects, um, you know, developing countries where they don't have the resources to, um, to fight uh, against it uh, properly. Mm. Now, you've been working in particular on the idea of a vaccine. So tell us about that. I mean, what, what's been the strategy with regards to vaccines? Because this is not a, a virus, is it? This is a parasite that enters the yes. blood cell. Is that right? Yes. Well, the parasite um, is transmitted by mosquitoes mm -hmm. and first it infects the liver. Mm -hmm. And it develops in the liver for, in the liver for a few days before progressing to the blood and causing the typical symptoms of the disease and potentially killing um, people. Um, so our strategy is to uh, try to kill the parasite in the liver. So during that stage, the disease is asymptomatic, like mm. there are, people don't know that they are infected. Um, so if we, if we were able to stop the, the infection at that stage, then we would prevent the symptoms, 
would prevent the transmission. So uh, it would be really good if we were able to, to do that. So our strategy is to focus on how can we induce an immune response that could stop the infection in the liver. Mm. And you can only get malaria from the mosquito, can't you? Like I can't transmit it if I have it to you. It's It has and to be... It's Yeah, it's mainly mosquitoes. I mean, I guess you could transmit it by uh, blood transfusions or okay. something like that. Yeah. You know, the normal way of transmission is mosquitoes. Yeah. Okay, so so how do we go about killing it in the liver then? This this sounds like um, you know, quite a challenge. It is a challenge because the parasites only develop in the liver for a, a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. In humans, it's about a week. I work with uh, mouse models for malaria, and in mice, uh, the parasites only stay in the liver for two days. Right. And that's a very short period of time for the immune system to do anything against them. So we need a very, very quick response that is able to kill the parasites within that short period of time. So a few years ago, we identified um, a new type of immune cell that is called, uh, it's, it's a type of T cell, it's called tissue-resident memory T cell in the liver. And those cells are precisely able to do that, like to, to uh, respond against an infection very, very quickly. And we demonstrated that they are able to kill the malaria parasites in the liver. So that we are trying to make a vaccine that exploits these features of uh, tissue-resistant memory T cells that makes induce the formation of lots of these cells in the liver uh, for protection. Mm. So this is something that... So- you, you have to have had this, obviously, it's a vaccine, so you have it long before you get exposed to the malaria parasite. Yes. Do, do you have a feeling in the work you've done so far how how long that uh, vaccination would, would work for? I mean, we, we see you know, vast differences between, you know, something like a tetanus injection, for example, versus the flu shot. Um, and I know, mm-hmm. you know that's for various reasons, but um, that, yeah. that time frame is different. How would this work for, for this sort of vaccine? Yeah, well, we have tried to study that in, in our mouse model, mm. and uh, we have been able to vaccinate mice and protect them against infection for about a third of their lifetime, right. their lifespan, just with one shot of the vaccine. Yeah. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that we will be able to make a human vaccine that will do exactly the same, but it does indicate that we can get very long-lived protection. Yeah, I, I, there's there's a, a gap in my knowledge here I'm going to have to admit to because I know how long humans and elephants and turtles live for and I know how long flies live for, but about how long does a mouse live for? <laughs> well, um, it's about six or 700 days okay. that the mice use in the lab. So yeah. we protect them for 200 days. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the, um, the, the parasite itself, I mean, give me a feel for when, when you get bitten by the mosquito, uh, h- how many of these parasites are involved in that process? Is it a very small number or is it like millions? Yes. No, it's very, very small. And that's another challenge for our, our vaccine. The mosquito, a mosquito will only transmit probably le- less than 100 parasites, even mm. like, probably something around 10 or 20 parasites only. And they go to the liver, which is a huge organ. And then, so that means you have only 10 or 20 cells in the liver that are infected. And the immune system has to find all those cells and kill them with the parasites inside. Because once they progress to the blood, they infect red blood cells and then you know, the infection goes out of control. Then you get mm. billions of parasites in very, a very short period of time. Mm. And and when that happens, when that infection you know goes throughout the blood system, I mean, I, and I suppose this is one of the big problems with it is that you know the blood obviously goes everywhere in the body. Yeah. I, I mean, what what sort of things are happening at that point? I mean, what are the what are the effects of malaria on the body? Um, well, um, 
First, there is um, the, the parasites infect red blood cells and, and destroy them. Mm. At, while they proliferate and they multiply in numbers, they destroy lots of red blood cells. So that causes anemia. Mm. But um, probably the most dangerous thing that happens is the immune system tries to fight this huge amount of parasites. And it's actually the response, the, uh, you know, uh, the response of the immune system that is out of control to that causes the, the most damage in, in the host. Um, it is thought that, for example, like one of the pathologies that, uh, from which uh, many people die from malaria is called cerebral malaria, where um, the parasites uh, get stuck in the uh, vessel, blood vessels in the brain. And then they block them. And then when the immune system goes there, the immune cells go there to try to kill those parasites. They cause a damage. Uh, to the brain, and then you know, that's mm. often uh, that's very dangerous and often fatal. Yeah, and so the the vaccine you've been working on is essentially, I mean, as you say, it's essentially worked, hasn't it, in in the mouse model? I mean, it, how how do you know for sure that it's it's doing that job? Yeah. So, um, well, in mice, um, we have demonstrated that, like, we, we designed this vaccine to make this special type of uh, immune cells, those tissue-resident memory cells in the liver. And we know if we get rid of them, if we deplete them, we lose protection. So we know those cells mediate the protection or are essential for protection in mice. Yep. Um, we know that in humans, tissue-resident memory cells exist in the liver, and we know they are very similar to the tissue-resident memory cells in mice. So obviously we cannot do the same type of experiments mm. in humans, but there is... Uh, we are confident that the tissue resident memory cells in humans could be used in the same way we use them in mice to mm. fight malaria. So, I mean, sure, of, sure of asking you the, the the ridiculous question that most people in the media ask about when you'll have that vaccine ready. What 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 are the steps now that you have to go through to go from something that's effectively working in, in the mouse model to the potential of even trialing this in humans? I mean, what what are those next steps for you? Yeah. There is a lot, still a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, we have taken a small step by, uh, we have um, uh, generated this vaccine that is proof of principle that tissue resident memory cells can be generated through vaccination and they can help like, against malaria. Um, and we have identified a fragment of the parasite that we can put in that vaccine to elicit this protection. Mm -hmm. So the next step is, if we want to apply this, to, to translate this to humans, we would need to find to identify more of those fragments of the parasite that can, are efficiently recognized by tissue-resistant memory cells in humans, something that we can do even with mouse models, because we will need to make a vaccine that contains a lot of those different fragments of the parasite to cover um, a broad range of, of parasites if we want to make a vaccine that is useful against uh, Parasites around the world. Yep. So next week. Yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel, look, it's 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 really it's it's great work. I mean, it's it's really interesting to hear how you you're tackling this. And I think, um, as we say, you know, there's so many different approaches for dealing with malaria once people have it or trying to prevent them from getting it. Often in a physical sense, we're you know limiting our exposure to these mosquitoes. But the idea of actually making us you know resistant to it innately, I think, is um, is a, an approach people have been looking for for a long time. So, look, congratulations on the work in the mouse model. It sounds really 
really encouraging mm-hmm. and hopefully um, hopefully over the years we'll be able to expand that into humans as well. So thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, that was Dr. Daniel Fernandez-Ruiz from the Doherty Institute. Three. Triple. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. It seems that we have a bit of a technical snafu with one of our guests. So um, instead, I quickly text my good buddy, Dr. Lauren, who's coming on in about 10 minutes, and she's already here, which is just awesome. Good morning, madam. How are you going? I literally just threw my my um, son was playing with his cars. I just threw them at him and ran back over here. So <laughs> glad to join you. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you. How have you been going uh, working as a researcher from home? Because uh, you just got a a very sizable grant from the NH and MRC. Congratulations! Uh, Thank you very much. No, it was a great honour. It's you know, as we all know, it's incredibly tough to get them now, and so when you do it, really does feel like winning the lottery. So I'm very grateful. Yeah, I think uh, when she says honour, the rest of us say she bloody well deserved it. And she's been, if anyone knew who, <laughs> how hard she's been working over the last few years, <laughs> it's not a huge surprise, although the success rates are, are what, one in 10. So the ability mm-hmm. to get those through is, is pretty spectacular. So well well done. Do you want to tell us a bit about what, what the work is on? Yeah, so I'm very excited about it. So so I've worked um, for a number of years now in inherited retinal diseases. So this is um, diseases that people are born with that cause them to go blind, and they're, they're very devastating. So normally people are diagnosed as kids or as young adults, and they're blind by the time they're in their 30s or mm. 40s. Um, and so what we've been really interested in is how do we stop this? You know, what, what can we do to, to stop people from going blind? And so um, I've worked before in the Bionic Eye, which some of our listeners that have been online for a few years will remember. Um, And now working very much on similar themes, but moving more into gene therapy now. So we're trying to come up with treatments for these inherited diseases that can stop the disease at an earlier stage. Mm, That's fantastic. And Dr. Linden's just come on the line too, which is excellent a few minutes early. Good morning, Dr. Linden. Good morning. How are you? Good. I was listening radio and I thought, hang on, I, I need to be here. So here I am. Yeah, it's, it's one of the marvels. One of the amazing things about having people in the studio with us, folks, is that if someone, uh, for whatever reason, you know, sometimes it's a you know, family emergency or whatever, it doesn't turn up, we just grab one of the other people and yank them into the studio and have more fun. But uh, with the with the Zoom calls, it's a little harder because you're sitting there and you're just waiting and waiting. And you're, it's like, uh-oh, this is not good. Uh, you know, I could just talk about space for an hour, but uh, every now and then I think that it's good to have a bit of variety for the listeners. Dr. Lyndon, we were just talking to Dr. Lauren about her uh, amazing grant success and and this this issue with some some blindness that occurs. And I mean, Lauren, what what are the current treatments for some of these conditions? I mean, I know you've worked on the bionic eye as one option, but I mean, what, what else is there? Yeah, so this is the, the really fascinating thing in this area. There, there's really nothing. Um, and so, you know, when I graduated from my clinical degree uh, about, oh gosh, I think about 15 years ago now, um, you know, you know <laughs> that was a bit scary then. Um, but, you know, there was nothing. There was literally nothing that could be done. So it was a very hard conversation with people because we would say, look, this is what your diagnosis is. Not only was there no treatment options, but we also didn't know how long they would have their vision for. And mm. so that was also really hard to discuss. So what um, my grant's actually about is uh, developing a natural history study. So we're going to follow people over a number of years so that we can start to answer the question, if you have this particular genetic mutation, 
what does that mean for your vision? How long are you likely to have your vision for and what can we do to intervene? Uh, so at the moment, the, the, the commercially available, there is the Bionic Eyes, obviously. There's a few of them around the world that you can actually purchase now. Um, but they're for people that have got really advanced vision loss, so they're already completely blind. Mm. And there is one gene therapy that's been approved. So you can actually, um, if you've got a very specific form of inherited eye disease, you can get a treatment now which um, we think will actually stop the disease in its tracks and should actually help people keep their vision for life. Yeah. It's one of those things where... Yeah, you know, it's one thing to be told that you have have one of these diseases and you're going to lose your vision. It's it's a completely different thing to not have a time frame for that. Like that must be just exceptionally you know painful for for patients not to be able to you know access that information. You're giving them the most devastating news and then not not being able to give them a time frame for when the loss will occur. Exactly, but it's, it's quite amazing what we've learned. You know, in the last ten years, it's gone from because when you when you look at the back of the eye with a lot of these conditions, they look the same. So up until, you know, 10 years ago, we were calling them all the same thing. But we now know there's over 300 different genes that are causing these diseases. So we can now give people a lot more detail. And even mm-hmm. things like family planning. So there's ocular genetics clinics that are specifically designed to help people make the decision if they're going to have kids, you know, what what does this mean for them? And, again, 15 years ago, this wasn't, wasn't a possibility. Yeah. So it's... Very rapidly moving field. Yeah, it's interesting. I know there's been some good funding in some of these areas, and especially, you know, I mean, the Bionic Eye is an example of that in Australia, although I suspect, you know, when, when Kevin Rudd ran his 2020 summit, um, being somewhat involved in that myself, it was an interesting scenario because we really, uh, you know, we had no other good ideas, it seemed, at the time, and, you know, that was the one that sort of jumped to the top of the pile. But we, we do have a scenario there where, in, in essence, the... You know, the eye offers a very unique scenario for other health you know, problems because it's the only place where you can see the vascular system directly of the body through the iris of the eye. And, yeah. and yet it seems to me as though, you know, we always talk about the health of the eye, but we don't talk enough about the eye for health. And yeah. it seems to me as though every cardiac, you know, centre in every hospital should have an ophthalmoscope taking images to collect data. I mean, do, are you seeing yeah. that starting where we're, you know, we're using that? Because that seems like a huge area. Very much. Yeah, very much. So there's heaps of projects going on in this area. Um, so one very key place is diabetes. So because we can actually see the blood vessels at the back of the mm. eye, you can see very early changes in diabetes. But it goes so much more than that. So there's a um, Associate Professor Peter Van Weingarten at Centre for Eye Research Australia. He's doing some really amazing projects now looking at Alzheimer's and whether you can predict, you know, cognitive impairment from looking at the back of the eye. So we, there's um, often phrase thrown around that the eye is the window to the brain, but it's so true. Mm. It's actually you know, the neural tissue from the eye is, you know, continuous with the brain, so we can tell so much yeah. about you know, a lot of things. Oh, look, it's amazing stuff. On the line with me is Dr. Linden, Dr. Lauren, and we've also got a new one of our FameLab uh, people from a couple of weeks ago who has come back on the show for me this morning because at some stage in the next 15 minutes, we're geeking out totally on the SpaceX launch uh, that happened in the US early this morning. Good morning, Anu. Can you, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you Ex- hear me? Yep, excellent. Now, uh, we might start off with you, uh, Dr. Linden. What have you got in terms of news for this week? 
Well, Dr. Shane, it's been a while since I've been on the air and I've been listening to the show every week. We've had some amazing uh, medical science, health science things coming out in the last few weeks, obviously. We always get a lot of great health science talked about yeah. on this show. Yeah. And I know that you brought Dr. Ailey and I on as climatologists to talk about weather and climate science a bit more. We did. And so the paper that I came across this week that really caught my eye is one that marries those two things together. Cool. This study is just adorable. It is just the most lovely study. It was a citizen science project run in the UK that was called Cloudy with a Chance of Pain. (laughs) (laughs) And this study... Great (laughs) time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, It was run by um, epidemiologists and and doctors and meteorologists and they asked people with chronic pain to download this app, Cloudy, with a chance of pain and mark down every day the level of pain that they felt. And then over 15, 16 months, they pulled all that information together to try to see if they could find a connection between weather patterns and changes in pain levels. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, at the outset, at the outset, I want to make a Nicolas Cage joke with regards to correlation versus causation, but please continue. Please continue. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But the thing is, this question is not new. I mean, it's been mm. asked for a long time, like way back in 400 BC, Hippocrates was, you know, saying that the changes in the winds would affect people's pains. And there's a lot of people with chronic pain yep. who thought to their doctors that their pain levels fluctuate depending on the weather. And so... Yeah, and they moved to Queensland. Well, you know, move to to Bath for the waters Mm. or try to get some sea breeze. It is a a question that gets asked a lot and lots of different researchers have studied it in the past, but this one is the biggest study that's been done. They had over 10,000 people sign up and in the end they got more than 5 million records of people recording the pain that they experienced. And... What I really, I just, the more I read about this, the more I loved it. So earlier in the year, the epidemiologist published a study using the best sort of set of data. There was about 2,000 people, I think, who recorded every single day for the whole period. So those, that information was used. But this month, the meteorological side of the team have had a go and they've taken all of the data uh, as long as there was sort of back-to-back, like day-by-day information from a few from, from everybody, so 10,000 mm-hmm. people, and had a look at the weather patterns that occurred when there was an increase in pain or a decrease in pain. And both studies found largely similar results, that there was a recorded increase in pain experienced if there was higher humidity, lower pressure, and higher wind speeds. They didn't find a significant relationship with temperature and they didn't really find a significant relationship with precipitation with Mm. rainfall interesting Uh, but yeah the study looked at the weather patterns as well they did sort of composite maps of where the high pressure systems and the low pressure systems were and look obviously shane you're right correlation and causation this study i read the meteorological meteorological one the study doesn't go into the physical reasons behind it and of course if someone is being asked to monitor something maybe they'll be a little bit more aware of it Mm. and they'll think oh yeah i am experiencing more pain because it's Mm. raining or something like that Mm -hmm. but yes there are a lot of caveats but 
I still think this question is worthy of asking, not only because it engaged people and the participants really enjoyed being involved mm. in it, but it mm. also validates their, you know, validates the concerns that people have well, and... It's it's super interesting to me because I think on a given day you have the capacity to deal with a certain number of things. And mm-hmm. if you've got some chronic pain condition and you're also pissed off because it's so humid, your capacity to deal with the pain actually to, to moderate that uh, mentally is is lowered by that. And it may well be that actually you're in the exact same pain you, you're normally in, but your, your mental capacity and energy to actually address that and address this annoying weather and these other conditions. Uh, you know, I can imagine if it was really hot, you know, you, you might get a similar result. And maybe the people in the study weren't in a region where, you know, 45 degrees was on the cards. But, um, well, no. Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> they're, they're uh, from the UK. So yeah, so, <laughs> so the range of temperatures <laughs> is pretty minor. But, you know, like if, if you were in those situations, I can imagine, yeah, I'm putting up all this pain and I'm bloody hot and it's bloody humid and it's bloody windy. All these things together mean I'm feeling it more and, it, and that's a problem. So there's some reality to that that I think is realistic. And, you know, looking at that is probably a, a scenario where, you know, I, I suspect the, the actual barometric pressure on the day is not what's causing your pain to feel different, but it does mean that you, you feel you know, you feel crappy because your environment is not as controlled. So yeah, interesting yeah. stuff, Dr. Lynn. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? I was reading about um, meteorites actually this oh, week. Cool. So on Friday, yeah. So I thought, you know, space theme, you know, SpaceX today, have to talk about something space. Um, but there's a really cool study that was published on Friday in the journal Geology looking at meteorites. And the first statistic which blew my mind is she had 17,000 impacts per year of meteorites on Earth. That's, I did not realize that. That's a huge number of hits. Yeah, they're not, they're not all the size of cars, we should say. Yeah. 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 Thankfully. Yeah, most of them are pretty small, but yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Otherwise, we'd be in like a Hollywood disaster flick every single day. But um, no, so obviously, most of them are very small. But this study was actually done by a group of mathematicians who were trying to predict whereabouts they fall, because that's obviously really important for us where we build infrastructure, you know, how we, and if you know, obviously you want to go watch them as well, you know, where are you more likely? And so they found, which we already kind of knew they're more likely to be near the equator. And that's because of the fact that they're coming from the asteroid belt, which circles the sun in the same plane as the Earth, and therefore it makes sense that it's near the equator. However, what was really interesting about this study is they decided that they needed some hard data to support some of the the numbers that they were coming up with. So obviously you can't actually count the 17,000 meteorites per year. So they went to Antarctica over two years and they actually used Antarctica because it's so easy to count meteorites there because they're small black stones on a white background. Mm. So very high contrast, very easy to find. Um, what they found is that the, the number that they were counting there matched up with their mathematical models so they knew that they were getting close um, in terms of the predictions. But what I really liked is they talked about one of the challenges is that the ice isn't still. It obviously melts, it flows. And so sometimes it was really challenging for them to work out if it was a new meteorite that had just fallen or if it was one from a long time ago that had just re-emerged. So I thought that was really fascinating. Um, Yeah really grabbed my attention. Yeah, it's great stuff. In fact, there's there's often a lot of meteorite uh, studies that happen on the, you know, the s- central parts of Australia too because the flat, shall I say, somewhat boring landscape makes them very easy to find uh, amongst exactly. the sort of relatively light browny colored soils and so forth. So, yeah, it's cool stuff. I I 
I want to find the meteorite. Yeah, it's one of my childhood dreams. I'm just going to wander around yeah. the outback for a while and see what happens, but I'm not sure I'd be able to recognize it if it was one. It wasn't just an ordinary <laughs> rock. Anyway. I, I remember being a kid and being sure that every single rock I found was a meteorite yeah. and my parents having to explain yeah. that, no, you know, yeah. that one in the garden bed's not nah, a meteorite. No, nah, nah, that's a stone from your local hardware store. Exactly. You, you hang on to it there, Lauren. <laughs> now, a new, uh, a new, you like me uh, were um, up very early this morning. Why did you get up at like 4 a.m.? What, what the hell's been going on? It was a must. It had to happen. Um, it's historic. It's uh, monumental. It's an election year in America. So it's very important that uh, crewed human spaceflight does return to American soil after almost a decade mm. of uh, America using uh, Roscosmos's Soyuz rockets to send out their astronauts. And finally, uh, SpaceX has made this a reality. Uh, they've been able to do it in a, cost- a cost-effective manner. And of course, it's very important, very historic, and uh, congratulations to SpaceX and NASA. Yeah, so I suppose just to recap for our listeners, this morning uh, was the first time since the space shuttle, the last space shuttle launch, some 10, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago now, when an American, uh, American rocket uh, on American soil actually is in the process right now of delivering two astronauts to the International Space Station. So they successfully took off from... I think it was uh, Pad 39A, if my memory is serving me correctly, which um, some will remember is the the launch pad that was used for the Apollo missions to the moon. So, and the last time I saw footage of that was actually when Gene Cernan was a guest on this show and we were talking about that and there was some footage in the film Last Man on the Moon where he's walking across that pad and he feels really, you can see the sadness in him because there's grass growing through concrete cracks and he sees it you know just unused and it's very very sad and it, unfortunately he he died you know th- just over three years ago now and and hasn't seen this resurgence of activity on pad 39a this historic pad but a new um just talk us through the launch itself i mean you know there was a few parts of it that were pretty fantastic with regards to the the reuse of the rocket and so forth Absolutely. We did see the Falcon 9 rocket um, come back onto the drone ship, and that was really exciting. Of course, this was the second launch attempt because it was supposed to happen on the 27th, which was a mm. few days ago. I had to scrub that last minute because they could see a few raindrops and some lightning, which is they're not good weather conditions to be launching in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is tropical storm season over in uh, Florida, so that was always going to be a little bit risky. you got to think about abort site uh, weather as well, if they were to perform an emergency abort during. Of course, we didn't have to worry about any of that today because they had a perfect launch. Uh, they're en route to the International Space Station. We've got about, I think, you know, 15 or so hours left now. Uh, if the public wants to tune into NASA TV online, they are keeping up with the journey as it goes on. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's quite amazing too. Like, um, I'm not sure your impression, but when you look at the internal <laughs> cockpit of of this this new crew vehicle, it, it looks like something that was built this year. You know, a lot of the footage we see of these things look, you know, they look like a, you know, to be fair, a slightly more complicated 747 from the, the 1970s. Yeah, but this doesn't. This looks like a brand new craft. It looks amazing, doesn't it? It's interesting. Absolutely. It does look quite futuristic, the beautiful white, the space suits. Uh, we've got, you know, you can see on my Zoom call right now, you've got the Roadster behind me, the Tesla Roadster and the mm. Starman. Uh, and of course, the camera angles. Initially, when I had seen that there were cameras in the cabins, 
I was really curious to see what sort of footage we'd be getting and yeah. whether that was real time and constant. And of course, I think they did turn off the cameras about five minutes into the flight. But, you know, we, we do have that kind of footage during launch and we can see what the astronauts are up to when they do hit um, microgravity. You can see the little, the little dinosaur toy float up into the air. So it's fantastic. It was really like we were there with them on this journey. And yeah. that's just, can't put a price on that. <laughs> Dr. Linden. So a four-year-old told me yesterday with some excitement that they would be able to see the rocket from like in the sky. How how accurate is this four-year-old scientist that I get all my space science news from? I suppose, well, I actually didn't look outside myself, uh, potentially, but I think in Melbourne, where I am based, I think we're a little bit too south to actually see the equatorial uh, launch trajectory. However, I do believe next Sunday, um, we're going to be able to see the International Space Station up in the sky at about a 71 degree angle. So it's quite high up. I think it's around 7 a.m. Yeah, I would keep an eye on that. That should be cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that a couple of weeks back. I showed my son. He was he was it, it, he's only seven. It took a bit to convince him there were people in there and that it was quite a big object. But it was cool, you know, that suddenly dad dad knew when this sort of this weird star was just going to come over the horizon, which made me magical. Uh, showed him the moon through my telescope the other night, and it just blew him away. He just totally freaked out by how awesome it looked, which was which was cool. Um, we're going to go in about a minute, but. Uh, and you just in, in 10 seconds, did you manage to watch the new Netflix series with Steve Carell yet called Space Force? Because one that, oh, get on board, people. I mean, this I is something. To. Yeah, have you watched it? I haven't seen it yet. I'll check it out. Uh, get on board. Last year, when you know the the Trump government announced uh, there would be Space Force, I was very excited. I was very serious about it because it's a very serious thing to make sure we have military in space. We need to be very serious. And Steve Crowell's done a great job of showing just how serious this situation is. So it's worth a look. <laughs> I'm going to go home and watch some more of it in a few minutes. Ah, uh, uh, I'll have to put that on my to do list for today. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> definitely get on board. It's a great show. Thanks for chatting to us anew. Thanks, Lyndon. Thanks, Lauren. Great to see you all. Thank you for having me. And, folks, if you want to follow this uh, really amazing uh, crew and craft, you can you can do it. Just go to nasa.gov and you'll be able to see it live there um, as it approaches the International Space Station. Folks, we're going to um, hand over now to the team from EDIT. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for listening to Einstein and GoGo, and we will chat to you again in about a week's time. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and GoGo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page.